0: Malware is malicious software that makes money for the creator of that software. Malware can appear onto a user's computer if that user visits a malicious website or installs malicious software by accident. There are many types of malware. Spyware sits on your machine and logs your data in order to sell it. Ransomware can lock your computer and demand that you pay money to unlock it. Adware serves you random pop-up ads that you don't want to see. Cryptojacking is a newer form of malware. Cryptojacking software uses your computer to mine Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Cryptojacking can occur when you visit a website that is running JavaScript that is executing along with the rest of the web page. When you visit a website with a cryptojacker, your computer will become slower because your CPU is being taken over to mine cryptocurrency. Cryptojacking can occur anywhere that code runs. And there's a lot of code running on cloud providers. Cloud providers themselves are very secure, but a cloud provider cannot force its customers to be secure. Users who host an insecure application on a cloud provider may get infected with a crypto jacker. If I host a large, complex website on a cloud provider and I'm serving millions of users, I'm already paying a lot in cloud costs. But when my application gets infected with a crypto jacker, my costs could shoot up, and if I don't know why my costs are increasing, I might leave the cloud provider. Esteban Vargas joins the show today. He's the co-founder of SafeTalpa, a company that provides defense against cryptojackers for cloud providers. Esteban joins the show to explain how cryptojackers work and why cloud providers have trouble defending against them. An update on FindCollabs, the new company that I'm starting... We increased the prizes for the Find Collabs Hackathon to a total of $5,000. If you're thinking about starting a business, or you have an app that you have wireframes or designs for, or you're an artist, or you're a creative person of some kind who's looking for collaborators, check out Find Collabs. The Find Collabs Hackathon has a first-place prize of $4,000 and a second-place prize of $1,000, There are also runner-up prizes, and the winners will appear on SE Daily to talk about their projects. The judges for the Find Collabs Hackathon are mostly investors. They're venture investors and seed investors. So if you have a cool business idea, this is a great place to get some feedback from investors and potentially win some money to fund your interesting business or your artistic project. The hackathon will run until April 14th at midnight, so you have plenty of time to find collaborators and build something awesome. You can go to findcollabs.com hackathon to find out more about the hackathon. And if you check out findcollabs, please send any feedback you have about Find Collabs to me, or you can post it in various places across the Find Collabs website. FindCollabs is a platform for online collaboration, and it was built for people like you, the people who listen to Software Engineering Daily. So your feedback is by definition useful for me. Also, one last announcement is that we will be having a Software Engineering Daily in-person meetup on April 3rd in San Francisco. Hasib Qureshi and I will sit down for a conversation about subjects related to cryptocurrency, investing, and philosophy. Hasib has been a frequently requested guest to come back on the show. I'm looking forward to talking to him once again. And the details for that will be at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup, though they are not posted quite yet as of today. So you can check back on that link and see if they're posted yet, softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup. Hasib is also one of the judges for the Find Collabs hackathon, So, if you want some feedback on any cryptocurrency related ideas, Find Collabs is a great place to post it. So, with that, let's get on to today's episode. Esteban Vargas, you are the co founder of Safe Talpa. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeffrey.
1: Thanks for having me. As I told you, I'm a fan of this podcast, and it's an honor for me to to be here.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's an honor to have you on. And I want to start by talking about the subject of malware. How do you define that term, malware?
1: Okay. It's basically any kind of cyber threat that damages the operating system or some other client software, such as a browser, or even like some desktop application. So the the most common term that we hear actually is virus, but virus is a a subset of malware. Other types of malware could be worms, which are the ones that propagate throughout a Wi-Fi network. Ransomware, which are ransomware is when a hacker encrypts some file that is valuable to you. And in order to decrypt it and like to get back the file, you have to pay a ransom, like deposit some money on a Bitcoin wallet or something like that to be able to recover the file. And a new kind of malware is crypto jacking, the unconsented use of computing resources to mine cryptocurrency. So malware is all sets of the sum of all these viruses, ransomware, etc.
0: It seems like modern malware is taking a, a different form than it was taking when I grew up. So when I was growing up, many people had malware on their consumer operating systems, and they would get it from clicking on links that they shouldn't click on, or installing some kind of software that they got over email, some EXE software. These days, it seems like there's less malware on consumer operating systems. Is that the case?
1: Actually, no, it's just changing. So, of course, like the big companies manufacturing the systems that you use, like Google and, like, and the operating systems makers such as Apple and Microsoft, they're doing a better job adding cybersecurity as a future towards your products. Right. So, for example, trillions, they still exist, but they are not as common as they were 10, 15 years ago. Right. Taking it from that perspective. You're right. But threats are evolving. And crypto is a clear case of that. And with the popularity of of cryptocurrencies, um, hackers found a way to find a gap hole in, in how our current security systems are architectured. And, and they're making a lot of money of it. And, and actually it's more profitable for them because for example, let, let's say ransomware. If I get affected by ransomware, I have to do all the job of contacting a hacker. Hey, where? what's your Bitcoin wallet? How can I deposit this ransom? Whereas crypto jacking is just, just makes them money when people navigate on the web, right? So threats are evolving to bypass current cybersecurity holes and to be every time more profitable. So they keep existing. It's just that they gotta adapt to how the manufacturers adapt their new systems. But I do agree on one thing. The industry is more conscious about cybersecurity now and the big companies have like a real big interest now in building cybersecurity natively onto their systems.
0: How has cryptocurrency affected the ecosystem of malware?
1: Well, CryptoJacking is the like, f- for end users and for cloud providers, which I want to talk a lot about that, how it affects cloud providers, but for end users, it's currently the, the most, the attack with the greatest trend. And that basically, yeah, like, even if the price of Bitcoin and Monero is at a low, there's still a huge motivation for the cyber criminals to to get easy money. So, yeah, it's... There's a big correlation between the, this hyper cryptocurrency and, mal- and malware attacks.
0: You've mentioned this term a couple of times, cryptojacking. What is cryptojacking?
1: Okay, so cryptojacking is the use of your computer or computing resources at a broader level to mine cryptocurrency.
0: And who does cryptojacking affect?
1: Okay, yeah. So let me tell you a story. We started thinking that the ones that suffered the most uh, were like companies, right, of any size, because cryptojackers, crypto sorry, tend to act as a worm, which means that, for example, I'm an employee at some agency, right, and I do some creative uh, work, so I got to download music for for the creative work I'm doing, like to, to have some background sound for the video or something, and I go to an illegal download site, and I download the song, but that site is a crypto, contains a cryptojacker. So the cryptojacker then will propagate throughout the whole Wi-Fi network I'm part of, which means that the whole office will be infected by this without even logging into the into the illegal download site that I that I initially logged into, right? And this like the greatest cost here is that they hire IT support, they might also spend some money on equipment change. And we actually did a study and went up Oh, and higher electricity bills. And when this happens to a small business located in the U.S., because, because we also have to adjust, uh, for example, the cost of electricity to two different countries and different areas. When this happens to a small business in the U.S., the financial impact is between $400 and $3,000, mixing IT support, equipment change, and, and electricity bills. But then we realized that actually cloud providers are the ones that suffer in the order of magnitude of the millions of dollars. So let me explain. Um, let's say I'm a cybercriminal and I deploy a crypto-jacking sc- a site that contains a cryptojacking script with, with any cloud provider. There are hundreds of them now. And let's say the cloud provider has a really big and important customer. Let's say it's a bank. And I'm sharing infrastructure with the bank. So, because the cloud pro- because my script will consume a lot of the cloud providers' com- uh, computing resources, the bank will notice that there's a problem with their cloud infrastructure. And what happens then is that the bank blacklists that cloud provider. And that is a huge revenue stream being blocked for the cloud provider. Mm-hmm. And not only that, there's like damages that could happen as well, like for infrastructure damage, higher electricity video- bills. But the main component of the financial burden generated for cloud providers is that they will get blacklisted. And, yeah, and that's basically an insight that we had having conversations with various cloud providers. So because of that discovery, we actually decided to shift away from building a Chrome extension for end users And we're now building an API that cloud providers can integrate into their infrastructure because they are the actor in this whole ecosystem that suffers the most when a crypto jacking script is deployed.
0: Let's explore some of the dimensions of crypto jacking and then we'll get into the the meat of this problem as it applies to cloud providers. Because as you said, these are the primary victims. Yeah. But the use case you described, like let's say an office worker, I work in an office of 100 people, maybe it's like a marketing company, and you know, during my lunch break, I'm like, I really want to hear that Taylor Swift song, and I want to download it. Because for some reason, I'm downloading music. I mean, some people do still download music. I remember this happening yeah. in high school one time. A relative of mine, you know, went to download music. And they paid the price. I mean, their, their Windows machine could not take that uh, downloaded music file. Of course, exactly, you know, what I'm referring to is the fact that they got a virus in the process of, quote-unquote, downloading the music. So, you know, that still happens today. You know, you search, download Taylor Swift... And, you know, it takes you to this page where it's like, okay, download, shake it off. And then it's like, it's very hard to figure out where you're clicking. Like you're clicking on like this big pop-up that's kind of like a download thing. Or maybe it's like a torrent site and you're confused. Like, why am I on this site? I I, I just want to download the actual MP3, not this torrent site. In any case, there's this vast network of different companies that that maliciously try to get people to download various types of malware by telling them, oh, you're downloading an MP3 file. And what you're describing is is something that that an office worker could easily fall victim to is they, you know, they go to click this download on a song thing, and then they accidentally install cryptojacking software. And they install it on their work computer and then it manages to infect the entire Wi-Fi network, I guess everybody that's on the Wi-Fi network, can you explain to me how does that happen? So if I'm an IT worker in an office environment, I download this cryptojacking software. It's going to start using my CPU resources to mine cryptocurrency, which is annoying enough. But how does it manage to propagate across the entire network?
1: Okay, so a really important thing there. There's two kinds of crypto jacking, in-browser crypto jacking and not in-browser crypto jacking. The first one is the one that is trending right now. Like what actually gets your computer hijacked to steal resources to use for crypto mining is not the some binary. It's not the actual song. The thing that is a cryptojacker. is this side itself. It's client side JavaScript. What executes the cryptojacking. jacking. Um, like putting binaries into some file was the way to do cryptojacking in the past. But it didn't emerge in popularity as much as in-browser cryptojacking. Um, So, for example, the Parrot Bay and all those sites have actually changed. I don't know if I should call this business model, but let's just call it that way. They changed their business model from AdWare to cryptojacking because it's more profitable for them, basically. And it just happens that the JavaScript that they injected into into their client-side code is what um, executes the cryptojacking operation. So it's not the binaries. It's not the file that is downloaded.
0: Okay. So we're talking just about in-browser cryptojacking here. So how does it make its way? So if if I'm the user, I go to this sketchy site and my browser starts getting hijacked to mine cryptocurrency, how does it make it to other people's computers in the same network?
1: well first thing um most of the cases are from sketchy sites like illegal download sites and yeah sketchy sites but it's not always the case like high profile cases include tesla and starbucks so for for example what happened at tesla is that some cyber criminals bypassed the tesla's cloud security and injected the cryptojackers into their kubernetes clusters knowledgeable that tesla is has a really recruit website So whenever someone would log on to Tesla site, they would mine cryptocurrency. So, yeah, basically, like once bypass that infrastructure, it's the best thing for them to get a profit. So it's not always on sketchy sites. What happened at Starbucks, for example, is that someone injected the Crypto Jacker on, you know, when you go to a Starbucks and you get asked for like for your receipt number or something like that. To be able to get into the Wi-Fi, well, a hacker injected that cryptojacking script into that site. So whenever someone used Starbucks Wi-Fi, they would mine cryptocurrency for the hacker. So, so yeah, what I want to tell you with this is that it's not always sketchy sites in um, the cases of in-browser cryptojacking.
0: So the Tesla one, that's, that's fascinating. I had heard about this Kubernetes cryptojacking situation at Tesla, but I didn't understand exactly the attack vector. So what you're describing is that Tesla had an unsecured Kubernetes cluster. The hacker got into the Kubernetes cluster and let's say they found the server... Like some Node.js server that's serving the front-end website, like when you go to tesla.com, and they altered the code for that, let's say, Node Node backend service, and they made the code send a cryptojacking script to the front-end user who goes to tesla.com, so that now when I go to tesla.com, I'm mining Bitcoin for this random person.
1: Yeah, that's exactly the flow of all of these.
0: Yeah. Okay. And the Starbucks example is also interesting, but I think we should move on. I want to understand how this cryptojacking script actually works. So I go to Tesla.com, I've got this malicious script that's executing in my browser. What's actually going on, and how is that execution leading to putting money into, eventually putting money into the wallet of some hacker?
1: Well, this is the deepest I haven't produced cryptojacking script myself. But what I can tell you at the deepest level of understanding, I have. So you import a JavaScript library called CoinHive, for example. It's freely available on all these sites that, by the way, contain cryptojacking scripts. And all you do is like import CoinHive, var new equals a new miner, then you put in your API key, and CoinHive does all on the background.
0: CoinHive is the, o- is the open source cryptojacker, right? Yeah, and, and
1: it's the most popular one right now. Yeah, that's right. Uh, But now what's behind the CoinHive code? Like, I don't have an answer to that, to be honest. But yeah, like, that's basically what's happening. But I can tell you how we are detecting it. And maybe that can also give an insight to you. So we inspired ourselves on a paper by some cybersecurity PhD that explains how analyzing certain variables were relevant to detect in browser crypto jacking. So, which is actually what what we're providing cloud providers. So, yeah, as I told you, like the most basic crypto jacking mechanism is importing Coinhive, and var equals new miner, blah blah blah, and then you have you deploy that, and you have a cryptojacker. It's something that you do not even need to have technical knowledge about. So, well, like a prevention mechanism could be just analyze every JavaScript file or, or HTML that has a script tag inside it and detect if it has a, like the word coin have in it somewhere or a coin hive import, it it might be better. Right? Like that would be a really basic detection mechanism, but we understand that cryptojackers are going to evolve and as as all cyber threats are going to evolve and new ones are going to emerge. So we cannot depend on such a basic defense. So what we're doing is basing ourselves on the paper, which basically analyzes three things. First, network packets. So, so these cybersecurity researchers found that on a network packet, you get certain variables like a comma address, foreign address, and like you could still do like a really hard-coded solution, just blacklisting certain IP addresses, right? But there are other other things. Such as uh, the size of the network packet, uh, the network protocol of that packet, and combining all, like, all these variables that you, you get when you analyze a network packet, you can actually build a machine learning, uh, unsupervised machine learning algorithm that clusters the packet into, in the paper that do it in three clusters, uh, which basically are benign packages, malicious packets that are not crypto jacking, but we're not going to cover them on this paper, and crypto jacking packets. So, yeah, like analyzing network packets, it's one thing that tells you if a CryptoJacking script is taking place or not. Second, a CPU power. So as I told you, a CryptoJacking script steals CPU power. And if you analyze the peaks of, you basically do time series analysis to your CPU usage graph. You can also get a lot of insight if a t- cryptojacking attack is taking place or not. And finally, it's analyzing the source code of like of JavaScript code. So as I told you, a really simple analysis of that code would be check if CoinHive is being ported or not. But there are more sophisticated ways like to de- detect that for every single case. So for example, they analyze the software complexity measures. So one of them is source lines of code. But you know, like the more complex ones. How set complexity, which is basically yeah, like seeing what's the, like which function calls another function and basically understand how that code is threaded and, and how it's all interconnected. So, like to get an insight on how complex the code is. Those code complexity measures also give an insight to see if a cryptojacking attack is taking place or not.
0: So if I understand you correctly, there's this open source library, CoinHive, and it, anybody could use it to install a cryptojacker but if you just install it in its normal code form then it's going to be very easy to detect so people probably use some kind of obfuscation or minification to like they transpile the javascript to some kind of minified obfuscated cryptojacker code is that right
1: we think that cyber criminals are going to do that once solutions like like ours get more popular. But right now, like, you can actually just search for a cryptojacking tutorial on YouTube. And a tutorial uploaded, like, in the last few months. Not in January 2018. No, like, one uploaded in the recent months. We'll just tell you to do it without minification, without obfuscation. So, yeah, right now it's actually pretty explicit.
0: Well, sure. I mean, you might be catching people that are doing it pretty explicitly, but... The fact that you're not necessarily seeing people make YouTube videos about how to obfuscate your JavaScript doesn't mean that people aren't doing it.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, more organized cyber criminals will obfuscate their code, of course. But what I want to tell you is that people, like, or, or less sophisticated cyber criminals, shall I say, are deploying this script, crypto jacking scripts really explicitly. And it's happening right now this way, explicitly.
0: Okay, let's get into this. So you've said that the cloud providers are big victims of this. How do the cloud providers suffer from crypto jacking?
1: It's basically what I told you before. Their cloud infrastructure will be blacklisted by their big customers, like banks and all those. Once the banks, DevOps team, or yeah, someone inside the bank or their automated, automated cloud health check systems detect that that cloud provider is having some issues with the use of their computing resources. Once that thing is detected by the bank, the bank will blacklist the cloud provider. So the cloud provider, which makes money by number of calls and, and yeah, basically by variable usage, will have that revenue stream blocked because of such blacklisting. So so that's like the main thing. Like they stop perceiving a huge amount of revenue. And there are like more indirect things, such as damage to infrastructure, the fact that they're consuming a lot more. So so if they're at the First, like if they are a level one provider, that will mean a higher electricity bill. And if they are a provider above level one, that will basically mean a higher check from the cloud provider that is providing cloud to the cloud provider. Because, you know, there are cloud providers who hire other cloud providers and are basically innovating in usage or something like that. So cloud providers also provide to other cloud providers. So yeah, if it's level one, it means a higher electricity bill. If it's above level one, it means a higher cloud build.
0: So level one is like AWS, and then level two is like a, a Zite or a spot inst. Exactly. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk through level one first, because I want to understand, how does AWS end up with cryptojacking scripts on their servers? And, and, and I mean, if I'm operating like a Tesla... They were probably AWS servers that the Tesla Kubernetes cluster was was running on. But anyway, I, sh- I should just ask that. So, ha- so if I'm an engineer at AWS, you know, I discover a cryptojacking script running on one of my servers, like, how does cryptojacking software manage to get onto an AWS server? And how does that differ from the path of me going to a malicious site and the crypto jacking script just executing in my browser?
1: There are two paths. First, a cyber criminal bypassing site with good intentions, such as Tesla, and then injecting the script. But the other path is me just building a site and deploying it via AWS. There are no barriers to that. And that's basically the path. And the path for the end user, yeah, it's just basically logging into one of those sites that have such a script injected onto them.
0: So how do you know that this is a prevalent problem at the cloud providers?
1: So, so yeah, yeah. So one of those cloud providers explained this to us with a really good analogy. So remember when your mom in the 2000s or even in the 90s, browsed her on the web and she got all these weird toolbars on her browser okay just, her just
0: just to be clear my dad was actually the one who downloaded that song earlier so i don't want to make this a a gendered malware discussion but uh your point is don't don't
1: <laughs> yeah so it's <just> an example
0: <laughs> please continue. So, so,
1: yeah so uh toolbar with all those weird icons that person can still navigate, yeah, like the browser will be slower, the computer will be slower, but that person can still navigate on the web despite having those weird toolbars, Internet Explorer or Google Chrome or whatever. But the cloud provider, mainly because of the financial reasons, has to do an enormous effort to remove the equivalent of those toolbars. Like, an end user can survive with a weird icons on their toolbars. The cloud provider cannot. So, yeah, the cloud provider has to do whatever it takes to remove the, like, the equivalent in the analogy of such weird toolbars.
0: So wh- help me understand why this is an economic problem for the cloud provider. Because if I'm, let's say I'm running jeffswebsite.com, and my infrastructure is running on AWS. I've got backend serving infrastructure on AWS, and a, there's a vulnerability in my site, and somebody installs a cryptojacker on Jeffswebsite.com on the infrastructure. Isn't that cost just going to go to me, not AWS?
1: No, 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 no. Because cloud computing basically means renting a server. Like in real simplified terms, that's what it means. So. And that's the whole point of cloud computing, that you don't have to buy a physical server just to host jeff.com. That is really costly. So instead, you rent AWS a portion of a server that they have, that they physically own. And you share that infrastructure with other AWS customers. But the big customer will have more advanced monitoring mechanisms to detect if that infrastructure that that's providing cloud to them is having issues so that's where the thing comes of course you of course as a a jeff.com you ask jeff the owner of jeff.com yes you will pay some bill but you're getting a profit so it's not actually a problem for you it's a problem for aws because of of the detection mechanisms that really big customers have
0: I'm still having trouble understanding this. So, if I'm operating jeffswebsite.com, and what I'm saying is a malicious attacker manages to install crypto jacking software on the infrastructure that I am renting from AWS, how does that negatively impact AWS? I would imagine that I would be the one who would be billed. No, yeah,
1: yeah. You get billed higher, but you're making money as well. So, it's, it ends up being a profit for you.
0: How am I making money?
1: Yeah, yeah, because of, not in dollars, but in Bitcoin or Monero, yeah.
0: No, 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 I'm saying there's somebody, the malicious, who has installed cryptojacking software on Jeff's website.com. I thought that was the attack vector.
1: Oh, okay, so so, yeah. so you're taking it from like from the perspective of what Tesla suffered. Yes. Basically. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, in that case, the owner of Jeff.com would also get a higher bill, but it's just a higher bill. It's not as the damage isn't as big as cutting one of your important customers. That's why the numbers are bigger for the cloud provider than for than for Jeff.com.
0: So, are you saying that AWS's own core server infrastructure that, or a cloud provider like AWS, could potentially be hacked and have cryptojacking software installed across the entire cloud provider infrastructure?
1: Well, I don't know exactly how AWS's architecture on the inside, but it's happening. People are deploying. I, I don't know if a deploy a single deploy single malicious deploy affects AWS's whole infrastructure. It probably probably doesn't because they must they have regions and all of that, and maybe other mechanisms to mitigate like issues such as this and other issues. But it will affect at least a part of their infrastructure.
0: What I'm trying to understand is how a cryptojacking script gets onto cloud provider infrastructure because cloud providers are typically I mean the at least the big ones are very very secure. Yeah, but but,
1: but as a person, I'm free to open up a, an AWS account and deploy whatever I want. And the problem is that yeah, they do have a lot of monitoring mechanisms, but not one—not one particularly focused on preventing that a cryptojacking script is deployed. So that's the thing. Anyone is free to deploy a cryptojacking script at any
0: time. So you're saying if I launch an AWS EC2 instance and then I start mining cryptocurrency on it, that's going to cost AWS money? I don't understand how that how that works. I mean, aren't I just paying? the server costs to run that server. And so AWS is charging me for running that software and they still make a profit.
1: Yeah. yeah. So if Jeff.com was AWS's only customer in the world, it wouldn't cost money to AWS. Like, or, or yeah, just sell it, but not in that order of magnitude. If you were the only customer AWS had, but AWS has, Customers of all sizes, including the really, really big ones with the really with the big box, and it's when one of those customers with the big box cuts the revenue stream they give to AWS that AWS has problems because they stop perceiving that huge amount of revenue.
0: I'm still having trouble understanding it because if I okay, so let's say I'm a user, I spin up an EC two instance, and I just start mining Bitcoin with that instance. And, well, first of all, is there anything problematic about that?
1: From technologically, no. Like, legally, yes, but tech, or at least in some places. But technologically, there's no barrier to do that.
0: Okay. So what's the difference between me spinning up a cryptocurrency mining node, like I just said, versus committing cryptojacking? How does cryptojacking manifest there? If I set up a node and I just start mining cryptocurrency, that's one thing. That's not going to harm... AWS. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just trying to understand the difference. Like, what exactly is, is causing this noisy neighbor problem that you're describing?
1: Yeah. there There's people using, yeah, mining cryptocurrency, their absolute consent. So your question is, what's the difference between that and crypto ducking, which is unconsented? Yeah. Well, uh, no, to, to be honest, I owe that answer to you. I, I never thought about that question before for cloud miners, and I would have to to investigate that, but yeah, I don't have an answer to that at the moment, to be honest.
0: Let's say there's a customer who operates a bank, and you're saying that the bank gets infected with crypto jacking software on AWS, and that they don't realize that, and so that's why they take their business off of AWS?
1: I mean, not forever, but temporarily, yeah.
0: Okay. So really the problem here is that companies get infected with crypto jacking software And they don't realize it? That's right. Okay. So I'm running my... So I'm a bank. I'm running my servers on a a giant cloud provider. And somehow my infrastructure gets infected with crypto jacking software. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I decide to take my software off of AWS or whatever giant cloud provider I'm hosted on. Because I just don't know what's going on. I don't know why it's getting so expensive to host my infrastructure and in fact, it's because there's crypto jacking software installed on my software.
1: Yeah, but I mean, not on your front end necessarily, but somewhere in your infrastructure.
0: Yeah. So this is actually happening where people are getting infected with crypto jacking software and they end up with really, really high cloud bills. And so they have to migrate their infrastructure off of the cloud because it's just so expensive.
1: Uh, yes. Well, or not of the cloud, but to some other cloud. Wow. It would be a, a better way of putting it.
0: And when they do that, do they manage to get rid of the cryptojacking software? That really is a
1: case, a case by case thing. There are companies that react faster than others. And yeah, it's, we, we cannot gen- generalize for all. <laughs>
0: How severe is this? How many companies are getting infected with crypto jacking software and running up gigantic cloud bills? Well,
1: I don't know that number, but I can give you the following number.
0: 33,000 sites reported
1: in 2018 known to contain crypto jacking scripts worldwide reported. So in a, there are tons that are not reported because they use better obfuscation mechanisms or whatever, but or because they were just simply not discovered, but 33,000 reported. And combined, they sum up over 1 billion users, those 33,000 sites. And the number of sites, that 33,000, was reported to be growing at an 18% monthly growth rate.
0: Of course, here we're talking about front-end sites, right? We're not necessarily talking about the back-end serving layer.
1: Yeah, we're talking about front-end, yeah.
0: Okay. And we don't have any idea how many of those are hosted on cloud providers, I guess. So I think this is a good place to introduce what you're working on, which is pretty interesting. So your company, Safe Talpa, is an API for understanding if a site is infected with a cryptojacker. Explain what Safe Talpa does.
1: Well, that's exactly an API that provides security for cloud providers, initially focused on this modern threat called crypto jacking. So yeah, we're basically an API that you can integrate your infrastructure with just a few lines of code, and we do all the detection behind the scenes. They're really complex detection um, operation, which we do it
0: behind the scenes. So describe the usage for a typical customer. So somebody somebody is is purchasing SafeTalpa, They're using your API. What are they doing?
1: Basically, what they do when they purchase Twilio or Stripe, uh, which is integrate an API to their to their code
0: base. And what is the path of that API request? So, for example,
1: our first feature, for example, for this API was analyzing URL, your, URLs. So you receive you have a function that re- receives one parameter that is a URL. And that URL re- returns a yes or a no, like benign or malign. And that's just with a single line of code. What we're doing behind the scenes for that like, verification is that we're querying the list of reported URLs to see if that URL is, is part of, of, of that list or not. So, so yeah, that's like our first feature and it was really basic, but still useful. And what we're, the next feature that we're working on is analyzing JavaScript files. So analyzing the code complexity of the JavaScript file that you pass as a parameter, we do the headset complexity analysis and all the code complexity measures on the background. All you have to do is write that single line of code, like analyze code and pass the the JavaScript file as a parameter. And then we'll do the analysis and tell you yes or no, it's good or bad.
0: And you're selling this product to cloud providers or to companies that run on cloud providers? Okay, so...
1: So we haven't released publicly yet. So it's more like a pre-selling, and it's for cloud providers. We've, yeah, we've been asked that a lot, and and it's basically because, as I told you, the cloud providers are the ones that suffer the most in this whole uh, ecosystem and flow and story of a. Uh, Cryptojacking deploy. So we think that we're better serving. Our customers should be better served if that that customer is the cloud provider, not any other actor. Or at least in 2019, of course, the future can change. but, But in 2019, that's the
0: answer. Okay, so I think I understand. So if I'm operating a cloud provider, I would want to be able to make API calls to the production sites that are running on my cloud provider. Because I want to be able to detect if cryptojackers are running on these companies, domains, because if a cryptojacker is running there, I want to be able to send them an email and say, hey, you've got a problem with your infrastructure. You've got a cryptojacker running on it. You should probably figure out what's going on.
1: Yeah, that's right. And the whole point of making an API is that maybe you want to send an email saying, sir, please correct this. Or you might just want to take it down immediately without asking. That, that's something that you're able to customize, and that's the whole point of building an API.
0: This is a brilliant business. Yeah, it's,
1: it's really hard, but yeah, we're starting this really long journey.
0: And you know, just just to clarify, like so, you, what you said about the first layer cloud providers versus the second layer cloud providers. Now I'm I'm thinking about like so, like if I so we just had a show today with Netlify. Netlify is an example of a second layer cloud provider. They're built on AWS and GCP. They host a bunch of different websites. I think a lot of the people who who deploy websites to Netlify are you know there's, it's got a real big appeal to newer users, newer developers. Newer developers, the thing is, they might be consuming really random GitHub repositories, and you know if they're consuming these random GitHub repositories, one of the vulnerabilities that I read about that you had you had written is that you know if you've got a, let's say you've got an open source GitHub repository, it's for some like really minor tool, like a some kind of stringify kind of tool, and it's just your open source repository. And let's say you you host this open source repository. Maybe there's been ten contributors to it, and somebody makes somebody you don't recognize makes a pull request to it, and like they fix a minor bug, and you're like, wow, you fixed a minor bug. You, you also committed like this strange piece of code that I don't really understand. You know, I, I don't really know why that is in the code, but man, because you fixed this bug, you know, I'm just going to accept your pull request and and you know forget about it. And then, you know, several months later, you can imagine somebody who is a new user, who's a new coder, you know, they're looking for a solution to their to some kind of stringify problem, and they find your open source repository or your npm package and they're like, "Oh, yeah, I'll install this npm package. It solves my problem." And this person then deploys to Netlify. And then all of a sudden, it turns out that that line of code that you didn't understand was a crypto jacker. And now this user has installed a crypto jacker on their Netlify website. And that's either going to cause sad times for you know this new developer, or it's going to cause sad times for their users, or it's going to cause sad times for Netlify, or it's going to cause sad times for the infrastructure that Netlify is built upon. And if they had if there was a safe talpa API request to this website, then hopefully it would at least identify that, hey, there is a vulnerability that is mining cryptocurrency on your website.
1: Yeah, that's exactly our vision. And you just reminded me of a story I read once on Hacker News about some open source project that, that was supposedly to change the colors of your terminal or something like that, but that in the background was an, an evil AI ter- Terminator style that would take over the world and, and steal everybody's passwords or something like that. It's not as science fiction as it sounds. This might actually happen, as you tell. Someone might, depl- might commit a change to some open source GitHub repository with some weird line of code that is actually a makeup. For some malicious script uh, cryptojacking or of or of some other kind. So so yeah, that's that's our vision to prevent that happening.
0: do you know if doesn't this already happen with like ad tech where people you know you end up getting a flashlight app or you end up getting some NPM? Package that that like is viewing ads in the background and it's uh, you know so it's so it's generating ad revenue. I haven't heard about that. Like, haven't heard about, it, but but it sounds really interesting. Okay, all right. Well, yeah, we've done some shows about advertising fraud. You may find those interesting. So so we're we're nearing the end of our time. This is this is really interesting technology. I want to talk a little bit about Latin America because I've read your your Twitter a little bit. Yeah. How does the startup ecosystem in Latin America compare to that of the US? Uh,
1: a lot of things here, but we got a really important news yesterday, though. So, for example, the whole deal flow for Latin America in 2018 was somewhere between two and three billion dollars. Okay. And yesterday, SoftBank announced a, a new fund focused on just Latin America of five billion dollars. So, yeah, we're emerging, but we're, I think, and we're betting on it that we're going to be like at least somewhere near China in the U.S. someday. So, yeah, things are starting to improve a lot. We already have unicorns here. And um, Rappi is like we have two unicorns in Bota, Colombia, for example, Life Miles and Rappi. Rappi, you might have heard of them, Y and Back Sequoia, Andreessen Horowitz, et etc. And they have been there. There are uh, delivery app for like, but not only for groceries, but for everything. Groceries. Uh, restaurants etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and these guys of Rappi have been inspiring a whole new generation of entrepreneurs and of software developers as well because software de- de- like Colombian and Latin American software developers in the past, were lured more towards going to Europe or, or North America to work for a big giant like Google or Microsoft or something like that instead of staying here in Latin America and starting a startup or working for a startup here. So yeah, that's starting to change and we still have to compete with the U.S. salaries, which are way higher. Of course, it's adjusted to the fact that we have really low living costs here and, and life is nice here. and People might want to be near their college friends near their family. So, so yeah, a lot of American startups have to compete with that not versus their U.S. counterparts. Not with the money, but like selling them the fact that they can keep growing happy here in their home city, home country, and with other things as well. So, equity, uh, that's another thing as well. Oh, and by the way, um, of course, you can have like a C Corp here. Stripe Atlas has lower that barrier a lot. So so having a Deloracy Corp to issue equity to your employees and investors is really easy. And yeah, you also compete with equity. But I think that the most important thing that is used to convince developers to work for you instead of going to North America or Europe is telling them that you're going to work on an interesting technical problem to solve. And now we're starting. So, yeah. A lot of scooters, a lot of delivery apps, which is totally fine. And it's something, a product that people absolutely need. And, and it's giving uh, millions of jobs to an underserved population. But we are now starting to see more hard tech stuff. So, for example, another startup from Bolotab which actually is in now, now, uh, Kiwi, KiwiBot now, they're building robots for automated food delivery. So these guys started like here in Columbia universities and then in Chile, Mexico, et cetera, basically being an on-demand delivery app, a focus on university campuses. Then they went to use Berkeley, opened UC Berkeley there, but they realized that realized that like a human delivery person costs a lot in the US. So they said, you know what? We're going to automate this. We're going to build robots uh, with monocular computer vision and, and a really cool technology. And Kiwi has made a really good job attracting talent. So, yeah, we're now starting to see more economies solving really, like, or harder technical problems. And, and I think that those are the main two. De- oh, okay, and another thing, we do have a lot of Latin American VCs, but unfortunately, most of, like like, startups are something common now in Latin America. But not a cybersecurity startup. So yeah, cybersecurity is still like a really abstract thing for most VCs to fund here. So we're actually going this summer to the U.S. to raise our seed round.
0: Okay. I want to talk more about the investment side of things. After the show, Maybe I, hopefully I can introduce you to some people. I think I think you got a really interesting business. Thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but last question I, I want to ask you, both because you're on the younger side of things and... You're in Latin America where cryptocurrency is actually seeing some of its earliest use cases and like actual like I think positive positive like really needed use cases at least as far as I read in the news
1: and bad ones as well like drug lords use them like good cases and bad cases as well unfortunately but yeah that's the truth
0: unfortunately yeah but why don't you lay out your what's your vision for how Cryptocurrencies are going to affect the world because uh, you know you hear such divergent opinions from people these days. W- what do you think happens in the next five to ten years?
1: Uh, first of all, I think that we're all guessing. I don't think there's still much data to back up like a really strong opinion, but, but but I do have an opinion, and my opinion is the following. I was like five years old when the dot com bubble happened, so like I don't have a memory from those days. But I've read from that episode of, of history, the dot-com bubble, and what I've read is that, like, everyone was pouring $100 million rounds to startups who didn't even have a product, right? And, like, com- companies would IPO uh, six months after incorporating and just having a dot-com in their name would increase their, uh, their NASDAQ value, like, twice or something like that. And that was a terrible bubble, of course. And a lot of people lost tons of cash and that and their jobs. And, and, and it was horrible. But it left us a really a really cool thing called the web and the internet. Yeah, like that changed the world f- for a lot of good. And, and I think that this cryptocurrency bubble, because I think it is a bubble, will leave us with something good. And I think that that's something good is gonna be blockchain technology. I think that whole decentralization thing and the transparency that blockchain gives to like for certificate emission and things like that, I think that that's gonna be the good side of this bubble.
0: Esteban, it's been really fun talking to you. I appreciate you coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Wow.